You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. You know, it's not a new idea that a lot of what drives human behaviour is unconscious and irrational. Go back to the end of the 19th century and you find Sigmund Freud trying to describe our unconscious and to intervene on what he thought, at least, was a more or less scientific basis. But our understanding of the unconscious mind has come a long way, grounded now in decades of basic research into what drives ordinary, everyday human behaviour. And it turns out that actually the great majority of our day-to-day decisions are driven by a variety of biases, heuristics and rules of thumb, without us even being aware. So yes, we can agree with Freud that we are often irrational. But as today's behavioural scientists like to say, we are predictably irrational. And what can be predicted can be managed, at least to some degree. Today's conversation is hosted by my McKinsey publishing colleague, Tim Dixon. You'll be hearing Tim in conversation about behavioural science with Julia Sperling. Julia is a neuroscientist by training and a McKinsey partner based in Frankfurt. Tim will also be speaking with Magdalena Smith, an organisation and people analytics expert based in London, and to Anna Guntner, who is a McKinsey consultant based in Berlin. So without further ado, over to Tim. Julia, Magdalena and Anna, thanks so much for being here today. Great pleasure. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Now, study of human behaviour isn't really new, and it's been widely accepted since at least Sigmund Freud that a lot of what drives human behaviour is, in fact, unconscious. So, Julia, what's new about behavioural science and why should executives take note? Of course, you're, you're right. Human psychology has been explored and used for management purposes for the past, let's say, over 100 years already. You're also right that Freud gave us a very deep insight into the human mind and how it works. The issue had always been, though, that while Freud's insights have been very useful, they have been very hard to implement because they were so deep and hard to grasp and hard to alter. So now we have the insights that people are predictably irrational, but we also have the tools coming out of it to help altering behavior, to help guiding behavior. What we use also is the insights not only from behavioral sciences, but also from neurosciences most recently. And I can tell you the human brain is spectacular. At any point in time, over 11 million bits of information hit our brain, and it's able to filter them down to about 50 only. And then 7 to 10 of them can be kept in short-term memory. Of course, with this enormous filtering exercise that it does, we cannot consciously make choices all the time and all the time. A lot has to happen very unconsciously. And by the way, that's a very different unconscious from the unconscious that Freud has been talking about. So, Julia, what are the main applications of behavioral science for companies? Well, number one, performance management. You can both identify factors that actually hinder performance as well as those that foster it. And money is, as we should already know, not always the best motivator. The second piece is recruiting and succession planning. Here, machine learning has a much more stronger ability to predict future success than those that have been, for example, choosing or selecting CVs 
in the past. And then lastly, cultures, be it for merger management or a general cultural change that you could see with bringing agility or more diversity to an institution or something as targeted as introducing a safety culture, for example. Anna, I know you're an expert on nudging. Can you tell us exactly what nudging is and a little bit the context for a company thinking about this? So the general idea behind nudging as well as debiasing is that people are predictably irrational. Now with nudges, subtle interventions based on insights from psychology and economics, we can uh, influence people's behavior without actually restricting it. So with a nudge, we could get uh, people to do whatever is best for them without actually prohibiting anything or imposing fines or restricting their behaviors uh, in any other hard way. And um, so in terms of nudging, there are uh, different applications uh, for companies. One certainly is marketing. And marketers have been using similar approaches for uh, for a long, long period of time. And what do you say if executives are squeamish about this and worry about nudging behaviors, changing behaviors that uh, may potentially be, be used for malign purposes and they may find sensitivities among their employees? It highly depends on what type of nudges you use and the intent with which you use them. So it is much more a function of is the behavior that you'd like to see in your company something that is in line with your company values, that is in line with what your company stands for? And that's the decision executives have to, to make. Nudging is then merely a technique to make this behavior more, more likely. But it's the choice of the behavior that uh, makes the difference. Another area um, of application in particular uh, is safety culture. So um, in terms of rational thinking, this of course is absolutely something irrational to uh, you know, risk your life by not sticking to the procedures. And with uh, behavioral science, companies are able to go away from the sort of backward-looking approach where after something happens, you try to understand what the reasons were and uh, um, take them out to something forward-looking where you try to not even attack people's mindsets, but to change the environment in a way that it becomes simpler and more intuitive for people to follow safety procedures. One of the problems that um, construction companies have is that uh, managers, once they become promoted, stop wearing the helmet as a sign of superiority to the workers. So um, a nudge that's implemented by some companies is that the uh, managers actually get a helmet of a different color. So they use the same status bias, but in a different way to help people to stick to safety procedures. Understood. So that's really about unleashing particular behaviors, but sometimes you've got to fight behaviors and biases. And Magdalena, I know that's something that you know a lot about and you've seen this in the action in the workplace. So can you talk about that aspect of the situation? So as Anna mentioned, we're not always rational. And sometimes that rationality or lack of rationality rather has a real impact on the decisions that we make. That can be extremely costly for organizations. We have recently worked on an incredibly interesting project where we've worked with a global asset manager trying to identify the decision-making biases that their fund managers have got and thereby also see what impact they have on the underlying performance of the funds. We did that by using both the data available in trading and also looked at their behaviour and looked at individual traits in a combination with this and analysing the process, the underlying decision-making process in more detail, we could identify which 
trades were less optimal than others. And looking at those and looking at the potential improvement in those, if you reduced the effect, really could show you the direct dollar impact that overcoming these biases had. They were significant. You're talking about 100 to 200 basis points per year for a fund manager and extra alpha on an equity fund. Now, that is billions for a company like this over the next three, four years. So I have a lot of clients asking in particular in their diversity efforts how they can minimize unconscious bias. It starts with the recruiting processes, so behavioral design of how to make them function in a way that doesn't favor those, we call them mini-me bias, that have always been recruited to the company before and would be recruited all the time again. Because again, our human brain is biased and we enjoy having those that remind ourselves of us around us. So if you want to replicate a homogeneous leadership group again and again and again, don't intervene. But if you want to have a diverse set of leaders in the future, you have to exactly be aware of those little biases and fight them, as we said, right at the start of your recruiting process. In Germany, together with about 20 other companies, we work in an initiative called Chefsache that wants to bring in more women into leadership positions, basically great gender balance. And as one of the focus topics, we look into unconscious bias within talent processes. So when you look into recruiting, for example, even with the best intentions, we talked about this mini-me bias, um, people make choices, make biased choices, and might miss out on talent because of those. So one of the debiasing techniques that we use is, for example, that after we've seen a case and we have a team speak about what they've seen, we now never let the most senior person in the room speak first because there's something called the sunflower bias, which is once the sun speaks, the flower follows, which means that in this group, people would more likely adapt maybe even a different position from the one that they had before. Another intervention to combat this bias is the bias that occur in recruiting is, for example, groupthink. So you make people fill out a statement on the candidate before themselves, before they enter the group's discussion. Because science has also shown that once a group starts adapting a certain opinion, it's very hard for the individuals that haven't spoken yet to be of another, uh, to bring in another thought or have another opinion there. So there we'd say, never let the most senior person in the room speak first and ensure that everyone notes the opinion right after having seen the recruitment candidate and before sharing their opinion. One of the areas that is growing very fast within debiasing and within nudging is the concept of advanced analytics and machine learning. And that has particularly been used, for example, when it comes to identifying talent's behaviours and future potentials and very much used in trying to identify who the great performers are going to be of the future and where they can be found. So to follow on on your example regarding recruitment, we've seen a global service company that wanted to make their recruitment process more efficient. The way they did this was by acknowledging which type of candidate would automatically go through to a round of interviews. They automatically put forward the top 5% of candidates. One of the very positive side of effects of this, which wasn't actually planned, but it was fantastic, was that what we identified was that the number of women that were put through to the first interviews increased massively. But technology has its own biases as well. What would you say to that? 
If we look at what machine learning is, machine learning is trying to find objective insights using data through algorithms, advanced statistical algorithms. Unfortunately, somehow those algorithms have to be programmed, and they're programmed by humans. What you very quickly see is that you see assumptions coming into the algorithms. You also see areas where assumptions are made in the sense of you have missing data. So you have to impute numbers where you either put a value on it or an assumption that then gets amplified throughout. You can and have to check very carefully whether your algorithms are working. By the way, when we use them in succession planning, for example, or when we use them in recruiting even, what we do is uh, we'd always advise our clients to do a look back in the past and see whether those algorithms, if they had been used already in recruiting, would have predicted the success of those in their positions right now. Absolutely. Right? So basically one has to be, uh, one has to reality check very carefully, every algorithm one puts in place. And that's one very practical example of how, how to do it. Let's talk about a, a different uh, area of application. For example, merger management. I think you've seen biases at work and how to counteract them in that situation. Anna? In merger management, the challenge that a lot of mergers, uh, we could even say every merger faces, is you try to bring together two different cultures, and uh, two different corporate cultures, and get them to function as one. And in that case, there are, of course, many biases, like especially the in-group, out-group bias that are at play. But there are also tools, debiasing techniques, but also nudging techniques that can help us prime or create a new common identity. So these can be very simple interventions. Like, for example, if you think about how to bring together new teams, so what can you do to foster exchange between people who barely know each other? Julia, you mentioned the context of performance management. Anna, I know you have an example of a counterintuitive insight from that area. In traditional management approaches, you would tend to assume that money is the biggest motivator, that uh, if you pay your employees more, then they will work more. Now we know that money is actually the hygienic factor. You have to pay them enough, but, to, but there are different things that motivate them, like, for example, meaning or acknowledgement or the social factor. And extrinsic motivation, if it's given for something um, which in the beginning was not for sale or if it's too low, can even reduce intrinsic motivation, like enjoyment or self-fulfillment of work. Also, we know that so-called performance uh, pay schemes, where you are paid depending on the result of your work, are actually detrimental for creative work because it makes people think narrowly in a particular direction, whereas for creativity you need to think broadly. Also, um, another assumption that you, would that you would typically have is that you need to give people honest feedback, right? You need to tell them what's, um, what they are doing well, what they are doing not so well, and how to improve it. But actually, um, there, is, uh, there is a lot of research that shows that people shut off and even try to avoid those from whom they have received such constructive feedback. One of the insights from behavioral economics that um, a lot of companies are now exploring to implement is to separate developmental feedback from evaluative feedback. Taking a step back and thinking about some of the broader challenges for CEOs and senior executives coming to this for the first time, what would you, what would you list as the, the key challenges? Well, I think one of the challenges is that you need to adopt the so-called evidence management mindset. So you need to be ready to test the things that you promote, now be it biasing algorithms or nudging or anything else, based on large samples of data. 
rather than uh, doing the way it is usually done in the past or even today when a lot of intelligent people get in the room, discuss and then come out with a decision which is then rolled out all across the organization. If we take the example of nudging, there it's uh, rather like running an A-B test, right? You have uh, one group of people who don't get exposed to the nudge and the other group of people who get exposed to the nudge um, and then you can measure the uh, difference in behavior that hopefully occurs between these uh, two groups and also assess then the um, profit impact. So that's one. Number two is it's still um, not very intuitive for many companies to think in terms of behaviors. So very often we think uh, in terms of KPIs, be it, for example, customer satisfaction or sales. So it takes some conscious effort to actually bring it down to the kind of behavior you are trying to change. And very often behaviors are being put into one box together with, with mindsets and core business is going to be put into a very different box. And putting those boxes together into one and showing how behaviors, and it's nothing but behaviors that ultimately drive an outcome in an organization, can be assessed, can be influenced, can be elicited, can be fostered, etc. in the same stringent way as some business processes can, is um, new for many executives. I'd like to add to that that debicing is hard. It's difficult. And just knowing that you have certain biases isn't sufficient. A lot of people acknowledge that biases have a massive effect on decision-making, but don't acknowledge, first of all, they have biases themselves, which is a bias in its own right. That's overconfidence. But even once you've identified a certain bias, You often need some form of external help. For example, in hospitals, they use checklists in order to make sure that they don't miss anything, they don't make certain assumptions about things. These are props that can help them overcome some of these biases that they may have or assumptions they make about patients that are helpful. There were some very interesting research coming out of the States last year which showed the number of mistakes that were made in hospitals between the eight years of 2000-2009 in, in taking people in to accidents and emergencies. There were hundreds and thousands of mistakes being done that they specifically put down to biases. The main one being anchoring and assuming that they've seen the first kind of information that comes in and they stick to that rather than explore any other problems they could have. They estimated that this actually had an impact of 100,000 lives a year. Being able to save another 100,000 people a year, I think that should be a motivation enough to try to use these kind of methodologies. This is becoming a, a hot topic more and more. When you look at international, international institutions, they're not only starting to deploy those approaches on larger scales, they're even building their own behavioral insights units. So they are actively recruiting behavioral psychologists, behavioral economists to work with them. Those units are being built as we speak. Is it a question of hiring behavioral economists or can companies create, generate an understanding themselves and, and do this themselves without uh, the very deep uh, academic understanding of this field? Well, it takes a couple of different skills. So number one, it takes a deep understanding of analytics and the ability to use data at scale. Right? Because uh, Anna mentioned the, you compare A to B when you do a nudging, you need to be able to set up these types of trail trials and to be able to process them properly. So properly, so there's an analytical capability that you need to have and need to build. 
Number two, and that might be even the more challenging one, is you need to have a deep understanding of your business and the opportunity to truly understand the precise behavior that leads to the unwanted outcomes or the precise behavior that gives you exactly the outcome that you want. So a deep understanding of your business, the way that your people are currently behaving and the way you would need them to behave in order to fulfill the strategic goals that you have or organizational goals that you have. And then of course, number three, you need these professions that I've been um, talking about before. You need those that come up with a whole library. I mean, McKinsey has one with over 150 of different interventions that are linked to certain nudges that have proven to work in companies in the past. And you deploy this database then to the precise behavior that you've identified that yields the business outcome. And you use the analytics to track the impact over time. So those are the three main capabilities that you need to, you need to build. I'm afraid that's all we have time for, but thanks very much to Julia Sperling, Magdalena Smith and Anna Guntner for a fascinating discussion. And thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us. To learn more about our work in behavioural science, change management and organisation more broadly, please visit us at mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.